Hello, this is Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. So this is our last episode of 2020, and we are looking forward to a great year. We wish everyone a happy and safe and healthy new year. Remember that sound? Anyone who grew up in the Boston area in the 70s will remember that little bit of music. It was played on our TV sets while we sat 10 inches away from it and watched Sesame Street or the always hip show Zoom. No, not the Zoom we all use today, but the 1972 Zoom. That iconic music is embedded in my brain, and I am happy to say that it is still being used to this day by GBH, formerly WGBH. Ron and I had the great opportunity to speak with GBH president and CEO, Jonathan Abbott. We caught up with John during a snow day and chatted about our memories of the early days, their current goals and projects, including their early transformation to digital platforms, their excellent Front Row Boston program, and all that they do to promote the arts and culture in Boston. So here is that conversation with CEO and president of GBH, Jonathan Abbott, recorded virtually in Boston, Massachusetts. Where are you right now? Yeah, you're at home, I assume, but where are yeah, you? Yeah, I am in my daughter's bedroom. I am, uh, we are empty nesters, so uh, I have, I've absconded with her, her place of growing up and it turned into my office for purposes. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. That's one of the yeah. benefits of an empty nester. My my task after this is to figure out how to climb every mountain and walk the dog. So and we have a, <laughs> and we have a small dog. So I've, I've had to promise my wife I'm not going to lose him. Yeah, when we first got our dog, who actually was uh, from Puerto Rico of all places, who's a rescue dog, about six years ago, and we might um, never seen snow, of course, and so we would shovel these little uh, conduits around the house so that the dog could actually like <laughs> get around. She's so small. She's 18 pounds. I'm mine's smaller than that. I know. Uh, no, what no. Uh, have an East. So we, he's, uh, he's uh, a good one, but uh, I gotta, I will be carrying him. We're hoping that I can, if I can get him to the street, uh, he won't have much to sniff, but he'll at least have uh, only snow up to his knees. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like there's like what, at least a foot out here. Jeez. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's coming, so you it's know. Yeah. Well, that's okay. It's but, it's the time for it. Well, you know, uh, John, thank you for for joining us. Really appreciate it. I know it's it's insane time for everybody. Um, how have you been doing yourself uh, during this time of COVID? Well, I mean, you know, we've all, I mean, just coping uh, and uh, families for the most part healthy. Obviously, uh, wrestling with older, you know, elderly uh, relatives and their care, which I think is one of the you know public health issues we'll all be struggling with when this thing's passed, but, um, uh, but otherwise, yeah, doing okay. And at GBH, we've been, you know, everyone really kind of rose the occasion and figured out new ways of getting work done. So we've been able to keep that, keep a lot of the projects that were on the boards. We kept them going and actually have done a lot of novel stuff because technology, you know, pushed us in some fun ways. You seem to have, when, when you became CEO of GBH and was it 2007? Yes. Only two years later, you went fully digital. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, we, we've, we've, digital, you know, in the broadcast media has been a series of, of intervals or iterations. Um, I first came to Boston when we were anticipating the full digital television transition um, and we're mapping that. Um, and in that case, that allowed us to go from two television channels to six. 
mm. and to launch things like the World Channel and the Create Channel, uh, and really expand the you know the range and body of work we could showcase and give people access to, and the and you know pertinent to today's conversation, the makers, um, the filmmakers and the creators uh, and the stories that we could you know we had a wider I, I use the retail metaphor we had you know we didn't have a five thousand square foot store we had a twenty thousand square foot mm. store. So we, you know, we had more television channels, but that was really the first step into recognizing that there would be an abundance of delivery capacity. And then ultimately over time, these new platforms that became, you know, powerfully on demand and social. So that those first steps at figuring out what more we could do mm. then led to, okay, where do we do it? Who do we do it with and how can it expand, you know, our palette, our menu and the people we're working with? You know, I, I can't compare it to uh, just because of my lack of knowledge, I can't compare it to other stations. But do you, do you find that your preparation and your your moving to digital so early in the game and that was so such a long time ago? Uh, do, you, do you find yourself in a in a really good prepared place once COVID hit? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think we had the right frame of mind. You know, the orientations of the possibilities of digital. Um, I think we'd learned through a lot of experimentation and piloting what need, you know, how to be on those platforms, mm. what needed to be different, how we're, you know, how our audience is using those platforms in a different way, a different grammar. You know, there's a phrase, the native grammar to a platform. So it allowed us to hopefully not be stuck in uh, a frame of mind about what to do and how to do it when we were in new places and uh, distributing new content. So, you know, there's been a, a generation of really remarkably talented GBH people who've had at projects like, you know, Front Row Boston or like some of the other work uh, we've done, um, launching things on on Twitch, uh, doing a lot on YouTube and Facebook. Um, uh, and I think we had the right frame of mind that hopefully kept us leaning, you know, running a little bit leaning forward. The other thing was that 2000, in 2007, when I took over, we just completed a big campaign for our relocation to mm -hmm. in Brighton, right on Market Street. And it's, you know, it's pertinent because when we made that transition, we were moving from an old facility that, you know, we would have literally had to kind of tear open from the inside and rewire for fiber and for broadband. So over that window of time from 2006, seven, before we moved in in the fall of 2007, we knew we were headed to a fully digital world. And so the facility was built fully fibered um, and included a, a concept for the studios, including our Fraser performance studio that, you know, I'm really pleased. It was a bit of a gamble at the time trying to figure out, you know, given the investment, can we imagine, using the studio actively energetically vividly enough to to build such a beautiful studio and you know you guys know in new york a lot of the beautiful recording spots these great beautiful spaces because of real estate in new york a lot of the classic beautiful sounding rooms are gone mm -hmm. um you know the historic rooms and so i think we ended up building a, a very special space that we've actually over these you know 13 years used more i'm grateful to say more and more and when we built it we built it and outfitted it so that it wasn't just audio but it was video so mm. it's allowed us to leverage it uh, tied to a, you know a more ambitious music agenda than we've ever had before i've never been to the fraser and uh, i have to go sometime i've been to gbh a couple times one when we were uh, with uh, jared bowen 
we interviewed him a couple of years ago at a great experience and, and a great tour of the digs. You know, I also had the privilege to uh, to talk with Emily Rooney a few years ago at t- 2013, around the time of the Boston bombing. I, I work at Mass General. My day hat is a, a physician in rehabilitation. You know, you talk about pivoting. You talk about the uh, uh, what Chuck said about you guys being prepared in 2009 to uh, to have the digital culture before something like this um, incredible pandemic takes takes effect. Telemedicine's been going on yeah. for years, uh, uh. so you could do an appointment <laughs> with somebody, right? You'd have everything from a dermatologist to you know a cardiologist, but it was a little. Should we, you know, not should we be doing this, but it, it was more like uh, against against the grain. And now what, the things you learn, and I would imagine the things you learn in music and the things you learn in news and production and your storytelling, there's things that we've learned as a culture that we're not going to go fully digital in the future. We're going to get back together. But what have we learned? And that's my question to you is what have you learned in this space that you would imagine you'll be um, balancing that with in person. What at GBH has been like the most special, I guess, that you can uh, comment on. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned telemedicine. I've talked to a bunch of our, uh, the folks we collaborate with and some of the, and some of our news coverage looking at, uh, you know, what's going to happen with the acceleration of, you know, medical services delivery. And, you know, there's that phrase that folks are starting to use saying we've, Many industries, through because of their need to embrace digital, because of COVID, have you know accelerated this transition that might have taken five years in five months. Right. So a lot right. of you know, there's a lot of the discussion I'm seeing says like we are basically in 2025, but we're in 2020. Um, right. So right for us, I think yeah, great, great um, point. There's something very powerful and liberating about the opportunity where. Uh, audiences, consumers are more comfortable, a wider swath of them, putting their arms around uh, uh, digital devices and digital delivery, right? Everybody's getting more comfortable with, oh, that's how I'll access that. Or that link that a friend told me about to that band or that reporting, that ability to interconnect content. It's an on-demand environment, right? So it used to be, the way I joke with the staff about it is, you know, it's a different world for GBH when my worry isn't, okay, Tuesday night at, you know, 10, I've got a new frontline coming up. How do I get an audience to Tuesday night at 10 when right. I'm going against, you know, let's be honest, The Bachelor, The Voice, you know, what's the one America's Secret Singer, you know, right, um, right. you know, I mean, that's, I always tease, you know, our staff and our board, I said, you know, we're proud of what we do, but gosh, man, if you have one point in time where you're fighting to basically create a moment where people say, I'll choose that, that's a different world than a world that says, create something great. And in people's busy lives, if they can't get you to you Tuesday at 10, they're yeah. going to get you, they're going to get you Wednesday or Thursday. You're right. It, and it's a cool, convenience. It's what, yeah. not when. Yeah. And the cool thing is very often they're coming because a friend told them, Hey, this is worth watching. And I think that's going to be actually even more powerful going forward because there's this fire hose of content mm-hmm. and choices, right? And you guys probably see it in the context of, you know, music and bands and how do people, you know, find bands and how, how are new acts recommended and how do people get excited about them? Well, they're going to rely on friends and, and critics, you know, kind of saying, pay attention. So that's a big change for us. So Frontline, for example, you know, we would, we'll premiere something at 10. It'll go up on the PBS streaming player. 
And then in the next week, we'll have then again, almost as large an audience. Right. And the other thing that is right. really powerful is that we all have to recognize is that there's not only the convenience, like you said, Ronnie, but also it is a younger and more diverse audience that is mm. that is comfortable and active on these platforms. So in effect, it's right. not just it's not just reaching more people. It's actually creating it's going where the audience is and actually having the ability to introduce Frontline or Nova or Front Row Boston or Open Studio or Greater Boston to a whole new audience because you are where they are. You know, many folks, they're just not watching. They're, they're just not going to choose to schedule their lives around linear television anymore. You, you talked about, uh, you know, the different audiences that you're trying to reach. And on top of COVID, we're, we're living in a time where social justice is really on the front lines and something that people talk about all the time. It's really, kind of, it's really the general conversation now. Not being extremely well-versed in the history of GBH, but, um, you know, I always have felt that uh, GB, I mean, I grew up in, in Boston. I grew up with Zoom and Sesame Street and all the, uh, you know, t Channel 2 was my channel when I was a little boy. Now now growing up with Zoom means a different thing, by the way. <laughs> that's true. That is true. That, that's our kids, yeah. Uh, we, I mean, we had the albums. We we wrote in to Zoom and they sent a yeah. postcard back. It was a huge part of my growing up culture. But, I mean, I think social justice and social equity has always been at the forefront of public television, especially GBH. I mean, I, I'm wondering, was there a... Was there a pivot once this really started becoming to the forefront or was this just business as usual? You're just like, you know, we're already there. Well, I think honestly, everyone recognized that there's tremendous work we all have to do across the country and in all of our communities. And I think every organization has wrestled with being persistent, resilient, and attentive to the issues of uh, social justice, uh, addressing structural racism, and both within organizations and in the work we do and how we do it. GBH, you know, was not an exception. Uh, we, it, you are right, Chuck, that it, it it's kind of in our uh, mission. It's in our mandate uh, to be a big tent, to be about voice and about inclusion and sharing um, and giving everyone a chance to understand uh, and have an experience with diverse perspectives, to take a journey. Um, often, you know, I grew up with in New York. Uh, and watch Channel 13 and listen to public radio in New York. And a lot of what my, the wider my worldview, when I when I can think about the places where my worldview got wider, it was thanks to stuff I was doing um, through public media. My parents had it on all the time. And, you know, and it was also, you know, listening to public radio and listening to different music on public radio than was found on commercial radio. So that's always been in our mandate. But the challenge is, you know, working really, really hard to figure out what barriers there are to widening our topic, uh, making sure we've got an attitude around inclusion and representation uh, and empowerment in not only the audience we're serving, but also, you know, in our workforce and the, yeah. and, the and the creators we're working with. I think this last year has been an opportunity to kind of really focus on where are we building these relationships, these bridges, and how can our work be more representative? Um, and how can we want everyone to see themselves in our work and to feel that they have agency and voice through our work? Well, and I think when you mentioned the younger crowd and the culture of convenience and the devices, that really does Venn diagram with a diverse community. 
you know, we can't rely, of course, on the dial on the car, uh, just the radio. It's it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere now. I think from a above the basement perspective with music and, and the arts in Boston, when I reflect personally on this podcast is uh, we've always uh, tried to be inclusive of gender and color um, and experience and genre, because I think that we want to show the, the, the whole sh- the whole landscape of Boston music, which cannot, you know, it, it, it's not just one way, of course. It's not just one subculture. What I think is uh, very interesting at GBH and, and other platforms like that or other stations is that there's a responsibility to show it and for be- people to hear it, but to see it. And a lot of times that comes in arts. So the it's not just the stories about the people, but it's um, it's actually the singers, the uh, the actors, um, the the folks that are creating uh, visual arts and how we reflect on their own culture is key. So I don't really have a question there, but I I guess uh, I really respect what you guys do because that is the voice of not only Boston, but it, it reflects nationally as well. Well, we're kind of hoping that one aspect of what we're hoping to accomplish is being a point of introduction, right? Um, we talked a little bit about curation and about how people find things. You mentioned Jared Bowen earlier, the commitment to very young in his journalism career and and. Boston was losing a lot of the arts reporters and cultural reporters uh, at the papers were taking the buyout um, as the newspaper industry contracted. And we made a commitment with Jared to say, we want to be attentive and steady uh, in our coverage. And I think, and that's one of the things we wrestle with is how can we build out talent on the team that spends enough time in a space to kind of um, have the connections, understand the issues, continue to broaden the lens. So I, that's been a great thing about Jared that then set us up for open studio. So Jared was reporting and doing that on television. And then when you know we uh, built GBH Radio and built out GBH Radio more in the news and, and talk format and found that success, Jared could get on the radio. And then ultimately it became rather easy, tied to some also issues with technology to build out open studio. Cool thing about Open Studio, by the way, mm. is um, that I love about the public media system. We are three having this conversation about what GBH is doing in Greater Boston and New England. Um, but the interesting thing is the public media system all around the country. There are hundreds of public radio stations, public television stations, each you know locally, uh, community owned and controlled. Right. So yeah. we're the largest distributed news network in America now. And what I love about it, now it's you know it's a it's a profoundly Jeffersonian model because uh, we got to make it work in every community with community support and accountability. But if I can tether it to you, yeah. So now over the last ten years, back to where Chuck was, at, you guys were asking about like what did it mean to be digital? Those stations, our stations, we talk and compare ideas about making that transformation together. Mm-hmm. So there's more sharing among those stations. Because we each from our parts of the country have something magical, you know, or inviting or inspiring to share. So I'll give you an example with, with, with Open Studio. Open Studio is one of many programs like it in parts of the country. And sure. all of us share our pieces. Mm-hmm. So Jared's pieces, when the ART is doing something mind-blowing or the ICA, or if there's an artist who's, who's doing something uh, in the South End that is of, you know, frankly, significance and national importance, 
we can, we'll put it into the bucket, into the basket. And so while we're airing it in an open studio, colleagues in Philadelphia, Seattle, San Antonio can be putting into their version of that program. In these times, it's one of the powerful things about the public media system. We're like a pointless painting of all of this going on all around the country. In the case of Front Row Boston, our music series, it's it's similar. That's a partnership with NPR Music. So NPR and we and PBS, we can all be looking at this whole system of stations that each are innovating and trying to connect with creators in their community. So yeah. we end up having a wider swath of uh, representation and uh, opportunities to access great artistic work from all around the country. And oh, I think yeah. it's, it's one of the things that in my work, I know I'm going to spend the next couple of years doing more work on, which is helping, you know, I think frankly coming out of this election year in 2020 and a year in which the world, the nation felt pulled apart. I, I see if we're going to hold this country together, a democracy together with strong uh, resilient communities. I am hopeful that our vision for what public media can continue to be builds on that fact that we're present in all these communities with with boards, with staffs, and with public support that uh, at least gives us the right platform to work from to to work together. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it sounds very symbiotic in the fact that the Philadelphia, Boston, like NPR local, uh, will have the platform, like you said, and have the swath of of the megaphone for like the story in Dorchester or the story, you know, locally in Philadelphia. But at the same time, the national platform, they need those feelers out to right. all of their subsidiaries, right? So they can't be the lens for everywhere. It's sort of like government. Um, you have to work together with the local and the state and the uh, national government. That must be a great marriage. It's, it can't be that easy to ex, uh, explain in one podcast, but how, how, did, how does that actually work where you must get a sort of a competition for air, I would think, but they're also looking for stories. So does the national front sort of make the decision along with the local? Like, how does that actually work? That's a great question. Well, you know, so we're each pitching, we're developing a relationship. We pitch in to NPR for the news magazine programs, Morning Edition and All Things Considered, which are the two most listened to radio programs in America now, spoken word, you know, news programs. Um, we pitch in and yeah, it's, you know, relative to the time and moment, if your piece is good enough and it's, and, it, and, the, and that news team decides that, that editorial team decides that can make it into the work, uh, sure. it's there. Same yep. thing with the news hour uh, on PBS, which whose audience has grown nearly 30%, frankly, in the last 14 months. Mm. Uh, more work with submissions coming from different newsrooms all around the country. So uh, there's that. And, you know, frankly, my own vision for this is, you know, if we're once we build the muscle where we're pitching and sharing the possibility of stories with NPR or the PBS news hour, in a way, I think what will happen in the next two years, I'd predict, is there will be a repository where, in a way, it's like a neural network. We're going to be pitching each other. So I'll give you an interesting example. When Mitt Romney ran for Senate in Utah, so the Utah public media organizations, right, they're taking a lot of interest in that Senate race. And sure. they're basically pitching, they may pitch NPR or PBS NewsHour, but but what organization that they share the world with were they equally interested in talking to? GBA. Right. Yeah, Boston, right? Because we had the bead on what Romney had done in Massachusetts. So maybe more. A, yeah, so yeah. there's exactly maybe more. So maybe they get 
uh, pieces on with NPR, but no, we connected our newsrooms back then because we knew Massachusetts audiences were fascinated with what, you know, former governor Romney was doing running for Senate, having re having replanted in Utah, right? A lot more persistent interest there. So actually you're right. Is there are two rhythms there? There's the, what, what warrants national and yet what, if two communities connect, is there even more that there might be an appetite for if they, if they bonded together? We did the same thing, by the way, with the Iowa caucuses last two quadrennial cycles. We have a direct relationship with uh, our friends uh, at Iowa Public Radio and their newsroom because we said, great, we know we're going to be getting some of your work through NPR, but we'd love to just connect with you directly. And can we get on the phone with two of your, instead of us sending a reporter to Iowa, you know, you've got folks who are there right. and they know all the issues. You've got much more experienced reporters. So can two or three of them be willing to do phoners with us? That's the power of, and I, and I hope it's a rationale for a stronger part of how we're going to save journalism in the country, you know, is be, it's going to be a different ecology, but the more reach and value can be created by interconnecting these newsrooms, the better. You know, we're, we're a music podcast. And so uh, <laughs> I want to shift a little bit, looking at the history of GB8, the very, very first the first broadcast that you ever did was of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, some some real historical moments in music history happened in GBH. The day after Dr. Martin Luther King was was killed, you recorded the, the I'm sorry, the James Brown concert at the Boston Garden. At the Garden, yeah. Which is a, a real seminal moment and a dangerous moment in history uh, in Boston at the time. And, and, you know, that kind of really calmed everyone down a little bit, being able to have that concert go on. I think Mayor White was was mayor yep. at the time, I believe. I have to see that, the James it, Brown concert after that. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's an, it's an amazing story. So, um, you know, GBH has been there for a lot of that. And not only that, and this was kind of a little, of a little aside, Gershon Kingsley. Do you know who Gershon Kingsley is? Does that ring a bell to you, John? I don't know where he gets his stuff. He wrote the theme song to GBH that. Uh, oh, now I knew. I knew I, the name sounded familiar. Okay, so the famous, as we call it, the the uh, the buzz blurb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I the mean, sting. Yeah. the sting, as we call it. The yeah. Sting, Wait, you're talking about. Can you sing it for me, Chuck? Well, I ha I actually <laughs> have it on my iPhone here, and so I'll play it for you. That's a moog. That right, was and, in exactly. my brain as a kid all the time. Anyway, that's a famous sounding little you were yeah. always cutting it. That's what I'm that's what I'm my, that's what I'm trying to say. Well, and you're a little kid too. I mean, you remember these things, they're imprinted in your brain forever. You know, the great thing about coming to GBH, I you know, I I had been in the public media sphere in other cities, but had worked with GBH people all the time. And it was it's always been a place about experimentation and uh, people going off into parts of the building and, you know, woodshedding something that all of a sudden it becomes something. So, uh, that we, you know, we were also the home of the new television workshop experimenting when video, you know, there's a uh, Namjoon Paik, uh, and a lot of fascinating experimentation with, you know, video art, uh, and, and in fact, trying to create more access to video art by in effect figuring out how it fit a broadcast paradigm so uh that's been you know i love that's the part about gbh that keeps me totally pumped is uh, and really frankly about the public media sphere is to meet the mission we have is kind of leaving plenty of room for folks to come forward with 
ideas. And Chuck, you mentioned, you know, music and, you know, a point of some pride for me is Front Row Boston. And the fact, I mean, that grew up somewhat similarly. Teammate Greg Shea had worked at the American Experience and wanted uh, a different, you know, was excited to start doing, making some own of his own films and experiment in some ways. And we really wanted to figure out how uh, and create a bigger embrace across the organization of short form video. So, Greg basically started experimenting with different teams, illustrating how with the prosumer uh, technology that was going to be rapidly available, how we could do new things, uh, new things faster. Uh, and he just put his head at a range of ideas. And one of them ended up being, you know, we'd love to do more in the music space. We have a great tradition, particularly deep in classical music and jazz, but this is a great scene in Boston. And, um, you know, there had been a lot of change to the scene, but still we knew the artists were there. How do we connect with them? So, you know, those earliest efforts to collaborate with the clubs and with the artists, uh, one of the things that's really important to me and to all of us is when we're working with an artist, I think a lot of it is around trust and, and coming to the table and saying, what can we do that fits where you're going or like where you, you know, what drives you? not making something and trying to fit an artist into a box, but just basically kind of following their slipstream or doing something that catches them in their moment. And so with the clubs working, you know, audio off the board and then figuring out an experiment in which we could be shooting uh, video in the clubs with up and coming artists, the ability to be create after the, you know, the music video industry had totally changed to be there with more young diverse artists and figuring out ways in which we could be creating more work that we would share with the artists and could become an asset for the artist. And that's kind of the early genesis of Front Row Boston. That was Greg and a team of people. And we just said, yeah, if you could figure out new ways of, can you get in the club? Can the lighting be right? What, what do you, you know, what would it take to make that happen? And then all of a sudden we got relationships with this generation of artists that you know, otherwise GBH wouldn't have had a relationship with. So I it really, and a body of archival work that I hope is important to those artists in, in documenting their careers, but also, you know, as we back to that earlier subject, maybe helping them in putting it out there on these digital platforms and socially so they can connect with new audiences. I mean, now that's a thing. I've been a fan of Austin city limits. For yeah ever. <laughs> and, you know, I actually just saw a great, Ron's going to kill me, I always say this, I saw a great documentary on Austin City Limits about the you know, the very beginnings of it and how, you know, they've been around since, I don't know, what was it, the 60s maybe, late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, I was thinking, why doesn't Boston have something like this? There's no reason why we shouldn't. We have the largest music school in the world that's now part with New England Conservatory. A lot of the, a lot of the colleges around here have um, have their own music departments. Um, this should be a music hub, and there's no reason why we shouldn't have that. And I, Combined with Harvard now, too. That's right. And I, yeah. and I love what Greg has done. And I know I've been talking to um, you know, Chris Ratt is a friend of mine. Yep. And Stacey Buchanan's a producer there. And you know what they've been doing with Fraser, a lot of the uh, artists you've had play there, we've already had on as guests. And they're not national names. They're local people who have a following. Who they're are just really good. Them. And they're building their base. And it's not about getting the most famous people on. It's about getting the local artists who are Boston based and, you know, either just starting out or just so freaking talented that we got to get people to see them. So I love that. I love the embracing of Boston musicians, but the national 
face of Boston music through Front Row Boston, I think is so needed in Boston. And, and uh, I so appreciate it when, when Front Row went over to GBH, because I, I just thought that would be such so great for them. Yeah. Now you mentioned Stacy and Chris and, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, a blessing for us, you know, partly, you know, you know, I mean, cause you talk to the artists, a lot of it's grounded in confidence and trust. Yeah. So another piece, another, you know, kind of really super member of the team is a guy, Antonio Oliart Ross. So a lot of what we do with GBH music, Antonio is probably one of the best audio engineers in the in the country, if not the world. He ran, he won two Grammys last year. He's nominated mm. for a, I think a couple this year. Oh, wow. And so I've watched it. We we recently did some beautiful things with um, Yo Yo Ma has come in after COVID started, and really we have a long standing relationship with Yo Yo, where he can basically just call up and say, "I got an idea, let's do something." After he did Songs of Joy and Peace, which is one of my favorite things he did, which was this kind of pan holiday thing with a range of artists. I went and tried to get him to think if we could do video of it. He said, no, I'm working on this new thing. Do you know what a goat rodeo is? And I said, mm. no. And he <laughs> educated me what a goat rodeo is and what he was going to, going to do with Chris Thiele and Edgar Meyer and Stuart Duncan. Wow, that was so and good. I am, you know, I'm really proud that, you know, Yo-Yo trusted us enough that, um, and I think they're getting ready with more with a new release, but on that release, at the time, given their touring schedules, those guys could only perform, I think they only performed nine times, two of which were at the House of Blues, which we recorded. And I'm so proud. I mean, this is like a super group conceived yeah. by all four, a super quartet. And we have this great show, uh, the Goat Rodeo Sessions that we were able to do. But I, I'm going to mention that because Yo-Yo and then recently, like uh, last weekend, we had maniacs in with yo-yo because they wanted to perform something to celebrate the 30 years of their collaboration and we did this uh with them three different concerts in fraser but mm -hmm. sometimes i've watched it the artists come in and you know when they think about getting it done with us when they know that antonio is at the board they're uh. like okay uh, we're in good shape because an artist is always thinking who's the team you know will the right will the, if it's video mm -hmm. will the lighting be right is the piano yeah, yeah. Is it going to be there? Is it going to be in tune? And then who's behind the board? And so we've got great, I'm really, with the yeah. stuff that Stacy and Greg and Chris have done and that Antonio have done, you know, the more we do it, the more, yeah, the prouder I am because we, you know, you feel more confident that you can kind of be with any artist and really put your heart out there and say, we'd love to do something with you and have them trust. We've got a body of work that hopefully they'll trust the. Uh-oh. You there? You're frozen. There he is. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. I got I got like four people in the house using broadband, so it, <laughs> you know. that's okay. I we had gone this far without any kind of explosion. I know my 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 seventh grader and my sophomore are all on their Zoom school right now, and oh. I can't even believe this works. Yeah, um, they they don't they have a snow day, and they're not a snow day with quotes, and they're not happy. Because they're on till two thirty. <laughs> um, you were talking about Yo Yo Ma, and I was just I was just mentioning to to Ron. Uh, I feel like I've seen more of Yo Yo Ma lately than I ever have. He just seems to be yeah. everywhere right now. And I know, I know, Ron. If you want to talk about this, uh, I know he's been very involved with Boston Hope and the GBH and the um, I'm sorry, the MGH. He did a performance apparently back in May. Uh, in recognition of the people we've lost to COVID, that's that's going to be airing again. Ron, you want to just quickly yeah. talk 
Tell, tell well, you. I mean, you know, I, I can picture those conversations because I've had the, the pleasure of meeting him as well. And he, as, as you know, has been a music and healing ambassador or healer for decades. And so his work with Silk Road and then he, what he's done in hospitals before yeah. um, really is getting back to the theme of some of this conversation is that it's like GBH going digital in 2009 uh, before the pandemic. I mean, this was yo-yo in his DNA um, before the pandemic hit. I was actually involved at Boston Hope, um, which is the field hospital uh, at the convention center. And I worked with a team of, of other uh, docs and nurses and everyone from the state and city and, and partners healthcare. And actually, uh, Jared did a piece that I can send you. You can probably find it's on GBH <laughs> and it's um, about the uh, music and healing interface for COVID patients. Um, and this was in uh, May. He did a wonderful job and he, interv he interviewed me and uh, Dr. Lisa Wong, who is mm -hmm. a, uh, have you heard of Lisa or, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. she's, oh, she's yeah. brilliant. She was on our yeah. show at, at above the basement. She's a brilliant thinker and a, and a good friend of Yo-Yo. So anyway, he came on and did this beautiful staff two-way connection where he played for us, for the staff at Boston Hope, just like he did at Mass General. And he listened to us and he performed and he just took it all in. And you know what? Nothing was broadcast. This was not about him doing something. This was just from the heart and healing a group of people that were all in this and the, and the uncertainty and fear. And I can't tell you there was not a dry eye. I mean, yeah. he was, it was beautiful. So that's my experience through that. I can only imagine. And, and I, and I want to say that, you know, you have a, uh, you really have that responsibility and that's what we appreciate, whether it's through Yo-Yo Ma or others. I mean, that's the, that's the platform that you can provide many people for that yeah, healing. No. So. Uh, gosh, I mean, Yo-Yo is one of the most special people on this earth. Honestly, one of the most um, compassionate and genuine communicators that I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. um, we are so lucky that he's here in Cambridge and part of our community. But, you know, Ronnie, you're right. Uh, you know, I always say to friends around the country when we do work with Yo-Yo, they go, is he that remarkable? Is he, is he really that way? And I said, with Yo-Yo, what you see is absolutely what you get. And then, then when, like you're saying, Ronnie, when you actually add up all the places he is, all the things he does, his love and generosity to so many other fellow musicians, mm. community people. I mean, just he is giving of himself to the world right. in ways that it, I just think he's, you know, just a gift, a truly a gift. So when our team knows if Yo-Yo comes in and says, I'd like to, you know, it's like we, you know, I was teasing. I said, you had me at I. <laughs> <laughs> we should all recognize in our New England community that we're so lucky he's our neighbor. You almost forget he's a musician, that yeah. he that he has the technical and the, the the amazing skill as a cellist. He's a he's a brilliant thinker and, and a musician. So that's that's what's so special, too, to me. Well, when he wanted to do the Bach cello suites, we just took for granted that he'd handle his part. And we had to figure out how to we had to make the studios COVID safe. So we went with robotic cameras. We did the pre-lighting. He signed up on thing. And then Antonio sat behind the board, right? And then we managed the cameras from a different room on robotics. Mm -hmm. So we basically set the room, then stepped out of the room, waited a period, and then Yo-Yo walked in. And from the moment he played, I mean, this is a long, right? The full suites. And he just sat alone in Fraser and did this. We had it up on YouTube, uh, probably... 
you know, just shy of a million people have seen it. Uh, but it was his gift. He just wanted to do something early on in the tragedy of COVID to, as, as something to heal. Yo-Yo was on Sesame Street when he was a young man. So he's always been involved with GBH. Yep, he's just that's been right. There. And he was on Mr. Rogers. That role of, you know, that sense of him as a teacher, as an example about the way to be in the world, uh, he's had from a very young age. To um, follow up on your automated cameras. Now, this is something that has been going on for, what, a 167-year tradition oh, yeah. of the Handel and Hayden Society doing the Messiah. That's an amazing number of years. And, you know, I, I was listening to, I think you just posted something this morning about it, actually. Yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting little documentary about it, how everyone has to leave the room. The cameras are automated. You have special masks for singers, which I don't know if they're invented specially for this or not, but mm -hmm. no, that's yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the guy, I can't remember who you were speaking with. I maybe it was the director of it um, who said, there is no way in hell I was going to be the one who screwed up the hundred, the 157 <laughs> year uh, record of having this done um, every year. So that's coming up this, this weekend, right? Yeah, I think, oh gosh, I should know off the top of my head. I think it's the either the 20th or 22nd. So it's called Messiah for Our Time. Mm -hmm. And it's done in collaboration with the Handel and Haydn Society. And you're referring to David Sneed, who's the right. uh, who's the executive director. And, uh, you know, I, I would say I loved it the way you were both talking about the Boston music scene. And there's such, we have a, a great community, a great fabric and a lot of talent. And one of the things that I think is going to be important for public media going forward is really being present and working out the relationships, right? Opening the door for these relationships that can be there constantly. So that when a need arises or an opportunity arises, somebody just picks up the phone and calls. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we've worked with Handel and Hyden for many, many years. And David calls and says, we got a situation, uh, longest running musical performance in American history. And of course, we all faced the circumstance of the marathon, Boston Marathon being canceled this year. How could we not figure out a way to solve this? Because Handel and Haydn, I mean, this is, you're right, Chuck, history. It's another, you know, hats off to our team. They love the challenge of saying, how do we help Handel and Haydn? And it's all about a relationship. We treasure our relationships with all the arts organizations and artists in Boston. And we're always trying to figure you know, we did something special with Boston Baroque. Here's a violinist. It's a great clip. It's a great performance. Uh, this extraordinary violinist playing in a mask. I mean, and there's something really compelling about watching yeah. you know, violinist master a piece, but having to do it with a mask on. Right. But no, that, no, there's a great piece in the Globe, I think, today on it. It's accessible on the Messiah for our time. And yeah, we had to uh, had to think through having the chorus, you know, with social distance. Uh, Antonio had to figure out, you know, how to lay on tracks so that we could create the mix. And then, you know, for Liz Chang and Tony Riddell, who worked on it, the opportunity of trying to figure out as a visual form, as a program, how to create, make it uh, fascinating and interesting and engaging with shots of Boston. Uh, kind of, It's a very reflective, it's a beautiful program. And we've got Handel and Haydn. So in, oh. in the holiday season, the ability to make that gift to Boston and to New England, we're really, really proud that they would come to us and that we could help them continue the tradition. It's right. needed. People are they're craving music. You know, there was just a recent collaboration between the BSO and Boston's Still Gold. It's a it's a, a rap hip hop band. They did a collaboration of 
uh, a song that that, uh, that Stilgold wrote with the BSO, and it was absolutely fantastic. And you know, one of the things I noticed when looking at all the upcoming and past music performances that you've recorded either at the Frasier or out, outdoors um, yep. um, is that it's a total mix. Uh, <laughs> you've got, I mean, you've had such a diverse group of musicians. I just love what you're doing there. Well, it was nice to the, you know, the opportunity with Front Row Boston was to create um, a production format and a pathway, right? A groove so that once we had the platform uh, and the production framework and the model, you're right, Chuck, then it it opens up uh, the possibilities of looking at artists and repertoire and making sure that we've got a really wide lens. And um, mm-hmm. so it wasn't it wasn't genre specific. It wasn't mm-hmm. format specific to where we started when you talked about that digital transformation. It, we, it was like, let's say it's platform specific or it was framework specific. And mm-hmm. what Greg and, and Chris and the others have done is build, you know, kind of build the house and you know now anybody can come over to the house we mm-hmm. can have a picnic we can have a picnic with anybody and right. with covid we couldn't get in the house into right. fraser but so as you mentioned a couple of the acts were shot in our uh you know we, t- we taped it in the parking lot yeah. uh so we did not give up yeah. but but the principles and the framework were there so i think we you know we built we built the right structure and now as we think about our world and a world of inclusion and a world where we really, and I think, I mean, you and Ronnie spent a lot of time talking with different people about this. I think the great thing about this next generation, what's going on in the music industry is we got a generation, a younger generation of people who are not trapped in genre, trapped in what the music industry wants to kind of, you know, groove them into, you know, getting fixated on. But instead you've got artists collaborating, you've got cross genre work, uh, really kind of an and right. this open influence that's going on. So it's kind of wide open. And yeah. that's, I think that befits the world we want in the way we all want to live and connect more widely uh, and deeply and broadly. So uh, so I'm glad it's a structure and I'm excited that the team has has managed bookings and priorities around a range of art, a wonderful range of artists. And uh, I'm hoping that we also with front row, at least are doing our part to, and Ronnie was getting at this, which is if we're going to have a vibrant scene, we all have to really connect and support the artists and get out. And when we can get back to venues, get to venues, get to performances, the vibrancy is the connection with the work. And I'm, I'm hoping we create some visibility for the artist so that somebody says, oh, somebody's playing, you know, at this club. I, oh, I heard her or I heard him um, or them. Yeah, uh, you guys are the glue. Yeah. You know? And so why not? If we spur that interest and somebody goes, that's a lot of what GBH is at its core is if, if it's about revelation, if it's about an experience that says, whoa, oh, aha, you know, oh, I'm, I'm more curious about that part of the world than I was before. And now I can do something about it our definition of being a part of needs to be bigger, deeper, wider, you know, and I, and we got to support venues and places where people come together. And uh, to something we said earlier about, you know, this moment around equity and about inclusion, we just have to keep working at uh, making sure that, you know, our reach and our scope and our invitation is a wide one. I mean, I, you know, we really want to make sure people trust and see themselves in what we do. In addition to seeing parts of the world that, you know, things about the world that, that they hadn't known because of the way each of us lives, you know, with, within some kind of box. That's why we're grateful when we can, when we can do things like that. 
Well, John, you've been, you've been more than generous with your time. I really appreciate you talking to you. Um, one last question. 2020 is thankfully almost behind us. What are you looking forward to to uh, in the in the new year? Uh, well, we've got a lot of work that's going to premiere next year that we actually were able to keep going. Personally, I am looking forward to getting back and being with people. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it's been amazing that Zoom lets people stay connected and creating, but there's nothing for me personally, there's nothing that replaces the ability to be with the people that I support and encourage and, and create with. So I'm really looking forward to the vaccine and some progress in getting people connected again and navigating hopefully by mid-year or so, getting back to what we think normal will be going forward. For our palette, history, science, frontline and public affairs, music, there's just, I think we're gonna have a robust 2021. We'll see, you know, there's a lot of stuff to, a lot of stuff to get excited about, but I don't know, probably like you guys, I, I miss being with people. You know, I, I'm going to take in part from this year, not taking that for granted. We uh, uh, look forward to meeting you in person someday. Yeah. No, I'd love no, Interesting, Ronnie, that we haven't had you at Fraser. So let's make a promise. Um, it would be fun, you know, you know, know about you both and what you've done through the podcast. So it'd be an honor to have you guys in to Fraser and love to have you meet some other members of the team beyond those that you know, but like Antonio. And uh, But let's find a chance to get you into Fraser. It's a beautiful space. We're really proud of it and uh, grateful when musicians walk in and go, oh, what can I do here? So I'd love to have you guys have that experience. Yeah, yeah. 2021, we're there. But no, thanks for the privilege of being with you guys. Um, nice way to finish up the year and I'm grateful for the chance to talk about GBH and, and, and the team there. I'm so proud of them. We would like to thank John for sitting with us and for all the great work he does at GBH. We would also like to thank Aaron Callanan for helping set this up. And of course, all the great folks at GBH for their dedication to the city of Boston. To watch, listen, and read more, go to gbh.org. Go to AboveTheBasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look for all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, thank you for listening. Tell your friends. Wear a mask, for God's sakes. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.